Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump appearing at a Miami courthouse in just a couple hours. What he'll do and how a court order could affect media coverage. The charges against former President Trump are serious. A former federal prosecutor unpacks the case for us, and a Democrat strategist gives us his take on the hot water Trump is in. Investigating Saudi influence in American Gulf, a Democratic senator says Saudi Arabia might use sports to distract from its human rights issues. An Armenian parent has objected to a California teacher's comments over LGBT issues. The teacher allegedly used the Armenian genocide to make her case. We have more on the disagreement. Former President Trump is set to appear at a Miami courthouse this afternoon. He's facing federal charges for his handling of classified documents. Joining us now is NTD's Iris Tao on the ground. Iris, what can we expect to see today? Hey, good afternoon, Chris. So in just less than three hours, former President Trump will arrive at this federal courthouse in Miami right behind me for his arraignment slated for 3 p.m. Eastern time. So right now, as you can see right behind me, people are already starting to gather here, both protesters and supporters of Trump. And the Miami police chief says that they are ready for any kind of scenario that could occur, and they have enough resources to respond to crowd sizes ranging from 5,000 people all all the way to 50,000. And of course, while we wait here for Trump's arrival, let's talk about what could happen once he gets here. So first, we're going to find out what entrance he's going to take. He's either going to go through the main lobby or the underground tunnel, which is potentially more low profile, but more secure. And once it's inside that courthouse, it's going to get processed. So normally for federal criminal defendants, they would go through like fingerprinting as well as getting photographed and potentially handcuffed. But for Trump is very different, of course. We know that he could get fingerprinted like last time in New York for his arraignment. But for photographing for a mugshot as well as getting handcuffed is very unlikely because we know that photographing is for identifying individuals. But Trump is no doubt one of the most recognizable people on earth. But also for handcuffing, we are not expecting Trump to run away. So that's also very unlikely here. And once he's in the courtroom, he's going to have charges against him read to him by a judge. And of course, he is expected, like he said, he will plead not guilty to the charges as he maintains that he has done nothing wrong. And we also know that after the arraignment this afternoon, he's going to fly back to New Jersey tonight to give a speech there at 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time, during which he will talk more about this whole indictment. So a lot to watch for in the next few hours here. And we'll, we'll bring the latest coverage here from the courthouse as well as from all over the place. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you, Iris. Trump in total is facing 38 federal charges including 31 under the Espionage Act. He's expected to plead not guilty today, but what will his defense look like next? To understand more about this case, I spoke with Will Scharf, former federal prosecutor and Missouri Attorney General candidate. Will Scharf, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you all this morning. Will, Special Counsel Jack Smith brought a 38-count indictment against Donald Trump and his valet. Can you explain these charges? Sure. So counts, the first 31 counts uh, are brought under the Espionage Act. 
and allege that President Trump uh, unlawfully retained national defense information uh, and declined to turn that information over uh, to the federal government or an official that had the right to have it. Uh, those are the most serious charges uh, in this indictment. The remaining seven counts are obstruction-related counts that relate to uh, President Trump's behavior and the behavior of his uh, valet, Walt Nauta, uh, during the pendency of the investigation uh, into this document issue. Now, you said the most serious charges are those brought under the Espionage Act. Why are they the most serious charges? The Espionage Act is a, it's a very serious criminal statute. Uh, legal commentators have been saying, really, since this indictment was first unsealed, uh, that the special counsel's interpretation and utilization of the Espionage Act here uh, is, uh, if not a radical departure from norms, uh, it's certainly an aggressive interpretation of the act. Uh, and that's where the most criminal liability uh, lies for the president here. And that's far and away the most controversial aspect of this prosecution into, into President Trump. So looking forward, what could Trump's defense be in this case against these charges? I expect President Trump's defense will be uh, that under the Presidential Records Act, he had the right to retain some of these records, or if not retain them, that he had the right to access them, uh, and that therefore the Espionage Act charges here are unfounded. I think one of the other issues that's going to uh, be at the forefront of this litigation uh, is, the pre is the president's state of mind and his intent. Uh, the Espionage Act subsection that he's charged under here, that subsection E, actually requires a, a, what we call in, in the legal field a culpable mens rea, requires that the president knows that some of the acts that he committed uh, were wrong, or in this case, he, he is required to know uh, that the information that he retained uh, could be damaging to the United States or could uh, assist a foreign enemy, essentially. That's the espionage component here. Proving that in court has historically been very difficult. I think the case law is much more on President Trump's side than it is on, on special counsel Smith's side here. And I expect that his legal team, the president's legal team, will be able to mount uh, an effective, vigorous defense against those 31 charges. What would you say the outcome of this case hinges upon here? So I think there are a couple issues. First, as I said, uh, we're in untested legal grounds in terms of the intersection of the Espionage Act uh, and the, the Presidential Records Act. Um, there's also, there's longstanding Department of Justice guidance on the idea that you don't bring uh, obstruction charges against an individual uh, absent underlying illegality. So if those Espionage Act charges are dismissed, I think there will be a real question under DOJ policy uh, whether they should continue to prosecute the president for the, the process-related charges. Uh, lastly, I think there's a, a very serious issue of propriety here. It's been longstanding Department of Justice policy not to bring new indictments or, in, in fact, to commit any overt investigative act uh, against politicians during the pendency of the election uh, to avoid the appearance of political timing or political influence on prosecutorial decisions. Special Counsel Smith's actions here clearly run afoul of that, uh, that longstanding principle and that longstanding policy. And I expect we'll be hearing a lot about that uh, from the president's lawyers in the coming days. 
Will Scharf, former federal prosecutor and Missouri Attorney General candidate, thank you. Appreciate you having me. Trump has bigger things to worry about than the 2024 election, like spending the remainder of his life in prison. That, according to Democratic strategist and civil rights attorney Robert Patillo, I spoke with him to get his take on Trump's predicament. Robert Patillo, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. How do you think this federal case against Donald Trump affects his prospects for the 2024 race? Uh, well, I think Donald Trump has more stuff to worry about right now than the 2024 race, particularly the concept that he may spend the remainder of his life in prison. Uh, and that's not a hyperbolic statement, that in a case of this nature, given the charges against him, uh, he could be looking at between five and 10 years on each of the charges involved. Uh, and that given Donald Trump's personality and given his uh, previous statements, uh, other than taking a plea agreement, if he's convicted on even one of these charges, he could be looking at spending uh, as a 76-year-old man to remain of his natural life in prison. Uh, so for the people who talk about the political aspects of it, they need to be talking about the person, the man, the human being, a person who's been used to being in private jets, living in uh, million-dollar apartments in New York City, um, being on magazine covers, potentially being in a jail cell or in a, uh, a, a elderly resort-type jail, a club-fed type jail, uh, for the remainder of his life. I don't think that's a prospect that has fully set in on many Trump supporters. Now, when it comes to the 2024 election, I think it's very clear that the Republican candidates who are running against Donald Trump also believe that he will be in jail. Uh, for the 2024 election. If you're Asa Hutchinson, you don't hop in to run against Donald Trump if you think he's going to be running. And I, I see people's actions far better than I hear their words. And the number of Republicans hopping into this field shows me that the Republican Party itself believes that Donald Trump will not be running in 2024. So you think he has bigger things to worry about. Uh, how do you think that this, uh, these ongoing legal troubles of Donald Trump will affect the Democratic Party's strategy going into the 2024 race? I think the Democratic Party is going to continue to just allow the legal process to play out and allow Donald Trump to twist in the wind. That if you compare the records of Trump versus the record of Biden, or even the record of Biden versus DeSantis in the past year or so, the difference is stark. On the one hand, President Biden can walk into 2024 saying, well, look, I passed a $1.7 trillion infrastructure bill. I passed a $1.5 trillion inflation reduction act, which has brought down inflation. We saw just today, um, that the inflation numbers have dropped over a percentage point, down to 4%, created 350,000 jobs last month, dropped the unemployment rate to 3.4%, passed a $3.5 bill, uh, trillion dollar uh, omnibus spending bill, pushed through the debt ceiling compromise to prevent a government shutdown, provided more support to Ukraine than any president since FDR, uh, solidified our relationships in the South Pacific to contain China. And meanwhile, Donald Trump can talk about two indictments, and Ron DeSantis went to war with Mickey Mouse, and he's losing that war against Mickey Mouse. So when it comes to the 2024 strategy, Democrats are going to continue focusing on pushing that policy agenda forward and allowing Republicans to implode on themselves. Do you think it was appropriate to bring this case against Donald Trump right ahead of the primaries and the presidential election? 
Absolutely. And I think the reason what we've been seeing is that Trump has figured out that the uh, because of the tradition of not charging declared presidential candidates, uh, that you can just keep pushing up that date when you declare when you're running. Uh, president Trump announced in November 2022 that he was running for president in 2024, a full two years prior to the race taking place. So if, it, if Jack Smith can't bring a charge against President Trump um, now, then what will stop Trump from immediately after the 2024 election declaring for 2028 and then declaring for 2032 thereafter? Uh, when the evidence is presented, when the information is ripe, when the witnesses are available, uh, when jurisdiction is proper, when venue is confirmed, then that is the time to bring the charges against the defendant in the case, because we cannot set the precedence that all you need to do to avoid criminal prosecution is just say you're running for president, and regardless of your ability to actually win, that shields you from prosecution. I, I think Jack Smith has made it very clear in the indictment that he filed, that he wrote it in plain language, he brought the strongest charges possible, and he made sure that the charges were something the average person can understand so that there was no appearance of political bias in this prosecution. Robert Patillo, Democratic strategist and civil rights attorney, thank you. Thank you. We will have special live coverage of Trump's arraignment in Miami, Florida today. That starts at 2 p.m. Eastern time. You can watch on cable or find it on our website at ntd.com. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre is warned about violating the Hatch Act. The violation relates to her use of the term mega-maga Republicans. Unfortunately, we have seen mega-maga Republican officials who don't believe in the rule of law. Mega-maga Republicans is a term first used by President Biden in October while attacking Republican economic policies. The Office of Special Counsel says she committed the violation ahead of the 2022 elections when she, reported, when she repeatedly used the term. The Hatch Act prohibits federal employees from influencing elections. It has been violated with some frequency during both this administration and the previous one. The Office of Special Counsel decided to close the matter with just a warning. It said White House counsel did not think Jean-Pierre violated the Hatch Act at the time and is reviewing the opinion now. Smartwatches, fitness trackers, and wireless earpieces. They're generating a lot of data on ordinary Americans, and some of it's for sale online to anyone with a credit card. Now, a newly declassified report says U.S. intelligence agencies are buying such information. The report says the vast amount of personal data is an increasingly powerful tool for intelligence gathering by U.S. and foreign spying agencies, and that it also represents a privacy risk to ordinary people. The report says to protect civil liberties, U.S. spy agencies need to catalog what data they buy and develop guidance for protecting that data. The report, completed in January 2022, was only recently declassified. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon asked for it. Senator Wyden says Congress needs to pass legislation to put guardrails around government data purchases. That includes reining in private companies that collect and sell such data, as well as keeping the personal information of Americans out of the hands of America's adversaries. Coming up, a U.S. senator from North Carolina is censured for siding with Democrats on gay marriage and gun control. The state's Republican Party organization brought the censure. And the Supreme Court declines an appeal about Confederate flags on North Carolina license plates. More in just a moment, here on NTD News Today.
Welcome back. The Senate will investigate Saudi Arabia's influence in American Gulf. Lawmakers say the Saudi regime might use sports to distract from its troubling human rights issues. Here are the details. The Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal is the chairman of the Select Subcommittee on Investigations. On Monday, he sent a letter to Live Golf CEO Greg Norman, starting an investigation. Live is a professional golf tour. It was launched in 2021 by Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, or PIF. Now, just last week, the PGA Tour announced that it would partner with Live by establishing a new commercial entity. This will unify golf with Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Saudi Arabia will provide the capital investment to support the new entity. Blumenthal's letter reads that PGA Tour's agreement with PIF regarding Live Golf raises concerns about the Saudi government's role in influencing the effort and the risks posed by a foreign government entity assuming control over a cherished American institution. PIF previously expressed its intention to utilize sports investment to expand Saudi Arabia's strategic objectives. This has some worried about an attempt to improve the country's global image despite its troubling human rights record. According to Blumenthal, critics have cast such Saudi investments in sports as a means of sport washing, an attempt to soften the country's image around the world, given Saudi Arabia's deeply disturbing human rights record at home and abroad. The committee is now requesting specific documents and information related to the agreement. An Armenian parent is fired up over a teacher's comments made in Glendale, California. The teacher allegedly used Armenian genocide to make her case for defense of LGBT persons and other minorities in the country. And TD's Daniel Monahan has more on the conflict. The incident happened during a contentious school board meeting last week. The Glendale Unified School Board was debating a resolution to make June LGBT Pride Month. Parents expressed concern and came to have their voices heard. They wanted the right to keep their kids away from the LGBT-focused curriculum. The teacher in question said she works with a lot of what she called queer and trans youth at an L.A. children's hospital as a volunteer. And so I deal with a lot of their trauma related to the heteronormative Judeo-Christian patriarchal imperialist capitalist system that oppresses them. The teacher then scolded Armenians and drew parallels between the Armenian genocide and the risk of LGBT youth suicide. How dare you as marginalized people come here and, and, and you don't want to talk about the oppressed trans youth who... The teacher added that 95% of kids will know they're trans when they are three, four, or five years old. A parent named Joseph wasn't pleased by the teacher's comparison. He said, a genocide of 1.5 million, at least, Armenians by the Turkish Ottoman Turks, it's complete gaslighting on the other side. Joseph was with a group of Armenians and hundreds of protesters who clashed with counter-protesters wielding pride flags. Another teacher also spoke at the meeting. I'm here in support of the LGBTQIA community. She supports Pride Month, but wants the school to do more. She called for implementing comprehensive LGBT education for students. The district should establish supportive programs and resources for students, staff, and families regarding the LGBTQIA issues. According to Joseph, what he calls sexualization has no business in schools. He says the schools are pushing these LGBT topics on kids who are as young as five. Joseph vows that he and like-minded parents will fight to remove such topics from schools.
Daniel Monahan, NTD News. North Carolina Republicans censure one of the state's two U.S. senators over his siding with Democrats on key legislation. He says he only acted based on current data and trends. Party delegates voted to censure Senator Tom Tillis over his votes on bills dealing with gay marriage and gun control. The vote took place behind closed doors and cannot remove Tillis from office, but supporters of the vote said they hope it sends a firm message of dissatisfaction. At least two-thirds of Republican delegates voted to pass the censure resolution. A spokesperson for Tillis defended the senator by bringing up his voting records on taxes, the border, and other matters. Former North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory aired his disagreement to the censure in a social media post. Tillis defended his change on the issue of gay marriage by saying, the data and facts have changed. The U.S. Supreme Court has declined an appeal on keeping a version of the Confederate flag on specialty North Carolina license plates. The appeal comes from a group called Sons of Confederate Veterans. The justices voted unanimously but did not explain the decision. The plates bear the emblem of the North Carolina chapter of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. They contain a version of the Confederate flag and were issued under a state law allowing specialty license plates. In January 2021, the North Carolina DMV announced it would stop issuing or renewing the plates. The group says it exists to honor and remember the sacrifices made by the armed forces of the Confederate States of America. Members say it was not created out of hate and is non-political. The rate of inflation has slowed for the 11th consecutive month. It cooled to its lowest annual rate in about two years last month. This is according to the Labor Department today. The Consumer Price Index, or CPI, fell 0.9%. It's sitting at 4% year over year in the month ending in May. Overall, inflation is decelerating thanks to energy and food costs. Food commodity prices have dropped back to levels seen prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The price of eggs fell nearly 14% compared to last month. This is the largest decrease in over 70 years. However, inflation is proving to be sticky on the core side. In the 12 months through May, the core CPI climbed 5.3%. For more, NTD Business's Don Ma speaks to an economic analyst. And here to talk to me is Mark Hamrick, Senior Economic Analyst, Bankrate.com. So let's talk about the headline CPI and then the, the core CPI. Headline number, we got 4.0%, uh, down 9 tenths uh, year over year. Uh, seems like we're making uh, some progress here with the inflation fight. Well, we've seen, I would say, progress in the war on inflation, but uh, the battle isn't won, of course, when we see just the headline inflation up 4% over the past year and higher than that on the uh, benchmark, which excludes food and energy, which typically we'd be excluding those because they're more volatile. But the reality is that all these prices have been volatile as we've been dealing with what had been the highest inflation in four decades, of course. You know, we, we are still well down from the peak. Remember, on the headline uh, from last uh, June, we were at 9.1% on an annual increase on headline consumer price index. So that was quite stunning when we were knocking on the door of a double digit increase. As we look around the world, Europe has had it worse than we have had. So that is sort of uh, cold comfort as the saying goes, because uh, just because someone else is perhaps suffering more doesn't mean that uh, the suffering that we've had in this country with 
really high and persistent inflation uh, has taken a toll on households and businesses, and that's what got the Federal Reserve in the game of raising interest rates in March of last year, when many of us uh, had been lulled into a sense of complacency that record low interest rates would be a thing that might last forever, but uh, inflation and the performance of the economy had some other ideas. So, Mark, on the core side, uh, we got a little bit more sticky inflation, 5.3% year over year. What do you think is contributing to this stickiness? Well, let's note, first of all, with the annual rise in the CPI of, I think, 5.3%, that's down from the peak of 66 but that's still way too high for the Federal Reserve to be comfortable when we think about its 2% target. And the Fed may have uh, an opinion about the idea of whether that 2% target is attainable at some point down the road. We'll get an update on that as they release uh, their uh, collective summary of economic projections. But to your point, Don, first of all, we think about the impact of high uh, transportation costs and how long it can really take to sort of extract that out of the system from the standpoint of, you know, you, you've had fuel prices come down, but, you know, they stu still have had an impact, meaning, let's say, needing to get things to market when we think about food and, and goods, um, and uh, still strong, sufficiently strong demand for goods, but more demand for services. So services inflation has been more persistent, and to your point, uh, the measures of essentially uh, the cost of uh, living at a place, uh, whether in a home that is owned or a home that is rented by uh, the residents, uh, that is seen as a stickier metric. It's not necessarily reflective of what's going on in the economy, but you know, measurement is something that is part of this process. And so as you try to capture that data, you have to essentially you know, go with what you've got. And there are some other real-time metrics, for example, of rent you know, taken nationwide that indicate that there has been more substantial cooling, but it doesn't necessarily show up in this data. And of course, the Federal Reserve knows that as well. All right. Thank you so much this morning, Mark. Uh, always a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you, Don. Thank you for having me. Check your freezer. Frozen strawberries are being recalled due to potential hepatitis A contamination. Wawona Frozen Foods is recalling an organic daybreak blend that's a year old. It was distributed to Costco wholesale stores in Arizona, California, Colorado, Utah, and Washington State. It was distributed from April 15th to June 26th, 2022. The company says no illnesses have been reported, and the voluntary recall is being done out of an abundance of caution. Anyone with the recalled product is urged to throw it out or return it to the store they bought it from for a refund. A Missouri man died after eating raw oysters that he bought from a food stand. His death is believed to be from the Vibrio vulnificus bacteria. It's responsible for 95% of seafood-related deaths. The mortality rate for this type of infection is 33%. Investigators say it's not the business's fault and that the oysters probably were infected before they arrived at the stand. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends not consuming raw shellfish or foods that had been in contact with raw shellfish and to thoroughly wash your hands after coming in contact with the food. After the break, NATO's largest ever Air Force exercise now taking place in the skies over Germany. Officials say it sends a clear message to Russia. Ukraine said at least 11 civilians were killed in a Russian missile strike on President Zelensky's hometown. 
We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. India says it never threatened to shut down Twitter. The country's head of information technology says Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey lied when he said so. Between 2020 and 2022, Twitter was violating Indian law multiple times. And it was in non-compliance several uh, times during those two, uh, the, the, those two years. And it started complying only in June 2022. During that entire period, nobody went to jail, nobody was raided. And so Jack Dorsey, knowing fully well that Twitter did not comply with Indian law and did not face any consequence of that, is today lying and making up this story about raids and, uh, and arrests. Dorsey quit as Twitter CEO in 2021, but he said on Monday that India threatened the company with raids. This was over government requests to take down certain posts. India's deputy minister for information technology called the allegations an outright lie. He also says that new owner Elon Musk exposed Twitter's inner workings, and the Twitter files revealed how the company tried to silence people. The leader of an Indian farmer's organization says India's government might have tried to pressure social media to restrict the reach of those involved in the farmers' protest movement. The protests ended after the government ultimately accepted the farmers' demands in 2021. In a show of unity, NATO has kicked off its largest air deployment exercise in history. Germany is serving as host and logistics hub. 25 nations have begun war games over the skies of Germany. Up to 10,000 personnel and 250 aircraft are taking part in a two-week-long exercise, known as Air Defender 2023. German defense official Eva Hogel says the drill is sending a clear signal to Russia. The exercise is also a very good sign that in a transatlantic sense, we are ready for action, that we work together in a multinational context, that we can rely on each other. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 has jolted NATO into preparing in earnest for the possibility of an attack on its territory. The U.S. alone is sending 2,000 troops and about 100 aircraft to the exercises, with its Reserve Air National Guard providing most of them. We've been doing this for a long time. We've been working with our NATO partners many times, and we're going to continue to do so with regard to anything that happens in the world. The drill will focus on air bases in Germany, but is limited to three areas, which won't all be used at the same time. Due to its location at the center of Europe, Germany provides a major logistics hub and staging area for such a training scenario. Officials said air traffic control authorities had worked with the Air Force to keep disruptions limited. The Air Defender 2023 exercises are set to run through June 23. Kyiv says Russian missiles killed at least 11 civilians in Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's hometown this morning. Meanwhile, Moscow claims Russian troops have captured U.S.-made Bradley fighting vehicles. Ukrainian officials said Russian missiles hit an apartment building and a warehouse in President Zelensky's hometown, killing at least 11 people. Tuesday's toll in Kriviria was among the highest from a single attack. The country's top military command said that air forces destroyed 10 out of 14 cruise missiles and one of the four Iranian-made drones across the whole of the Ukraine. 
Meanwhile, Kiev reported more gains in the early stages of its counteroffensive. The battles are fierce, but our movement is underway, and that is crucial. The enemy losses are exactly what we need, and although the weather these days is unfavorable, the rains complicate our task. Nevertheless, the strength of our soldiers yields results. Moscow said it has repulsed Ukrainian attacks, inflicting heavy casualties since the counteroffensive began. Russia's defense ministry released video footage on Tuesday of damaged US-made Bradley fighting vehicles and German-made Leopard 2 tanks. It said they were damaged by Russian forces in a battle on the South Front. Still to come, a string of early morning attacks leaves three dead and three injured in the English city of Nottingham. And immigration officials from the UK say a TikTok policy change has helped reduce illegal immigration. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. In England, a man was arrested on suspicion of murder after a series of attacks left three people dead and three injured. Police, including counterterrorism investigators, are working to establish the motive of the attacker. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has more. Three people have died and another three are being treated at a hospital following a series of attacks in the English city of Nottingham on Tuesday. Police described it as a horrific and tragic incident. A 31-year-old man has been arrested on suspicion of murder. He is understood to have a history of mental health issues. Counterterrorism investigators are involved to establish what has happened. Witnesses described hearing screams and seeing two people being stabbed in the early morning. They were both found dead at around 4 a.m. local time on Tuesday. A third victim was discovered about two miles away. Three other people were injured when someone tried to run them over with a white van. An eyewitness described the van attack to the BBC. The woman went on the curb. Uh, the man went up in the air. It was such a bang. I wish, to, I, wish I never saw it because it's really shaken me up. She said the van driver went straight for these people. They are now being treated at a hospital. Another woman said Nottingham is a wonderful city, but this incident is unsettling. You always feel really safe on the streets and... Yeah, we just, it's just foreign to us in, in all sorts of ways, really. Inside a police cordon, officers guarded the white van. Several major roads were closed and the Nottingham tram network was suspended. Members of the emergency services were visible across the city. The opposition leader commented, I'm sure I speak for everybody in this room in saying that we'd like to just send our thoughts to all those affected um, and to the emergency services who are responding to this. And British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said, My thoughts are with those injured and the family and loved ones of those who have lost their lives. Police said much of the city would remain sealed off while the investigation is continuing. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News. UK immigration officials said the number of illegal migrants from Albania has dropped significantly this year after TikTok banned ads posted by smugglers. The Times newspaper reported that TikTok started blocking posts advertising illegal crossings of the English Channel in March. Before the ban, thousands of ads were posted, some claiming that the dangerous crossing in small boats had a 100% success rate. Last year, over 12,000 Albanians crossed the channel in small boats, making them the second largest group behind Afghans. 
The Times reported that since the policy change, the number of illegal immigrants from Albania dropped to just 122, compared to almost 2,000 over the same period in 2022. Now to something unusual. Mourners in Ecuador yesterday got frightened when, during a wake, they noticed the coffin beginning to rattle. It turned out the 76-year-old Bella Montoya Tapia revived inside the coffin after being previously declared dead by doctors. Her son said after his mother began to bang on the coffin, he walked closer and found her breathing heavily. In a statement, the country's health ministry said the woman was first admitted to a hospital on Friday and she suffered a presumptive cerebrovascular accident and had a cardiorespiratory arrest. The woman was pushed back to the hospital to receive treatment in intensive care. A committee was formed to investigate the incident. Coming up, a rare Buddha statue from ancient China hits the auction block in Paris. The work may fetch up to $1 million. And a Spanish artist makes giant cross-stitch embroideries. Her works bring color and life to facades all over the world. We'll take you to her studio when we return. Welcome back. A rare Buddha statue is up for auction today in Paris. The work is said to come from 12th century China. Let's take a look. Standing over three feet in height, this wooden statue of Bodhisattva Guanying is described as very rare. It went through a period in China. It, was, it came out of China during a period of time when China was at a turmoil, was in turmoil. And many of these wood figures were destroyed at the time already. Some were sold, and this is one of the few that has survived. Bonham's auction house says it was last sold to a family in a Paris suburb in the 1930s, and the family didn't know its value until they called for an estimate. What has happened since then is that it has lost the finger, um, the fingers of the right hand, some of it, because um, they were clearly there when it was sold in 32. So in, in between, I think, um, I know that I was told there were children playing football around it, so things happen quite clearly. This piece is thought to be part of a lost set of Buddha statues. Bottom says only a handful of its kind remain in the world, most of them in museums. It's quite possible that there are more pieces from this group that are still around in France or maybe in Belgium or Switzerland. And it's quite exciting to have sort of think that maybe the sale of this figure or the publicity around it will generate more people looking at home and realizing that actually we've got a figure like that. The artwork is expected to fetch $1 million. Huge cross-stitched embroideries are adorning facades all over the world. The artist combined modern tools with the age-old technique, and TD's Andrew Thomas has the stitches. Raquel Rodrigo's pink floral embroidery will be ready soon. In her studio, an array of multicolored cotton threads. The idea was simple, to embroider a facade. I looked for materials that would allow me to make the facade appear to be embroidered from a distance without having to pierce the facade. So I looked for the square wire mesh, which serves as a support and which is not visible from afar, so it remains invisible. Rodrigo started creating large-scale cross-stitch embroidery in 2011. Her designs are on display at the shop in Valencia, Spain. It caught my attention because the background is, let's say, rustic, 
And above it is the wire that weaves the ropes and combines the colors. I loved it. I haven't seen it anywhere else before. Rodrigo has given the art form a modern twist. She creates collages of pixelated images on her computer. First, she makes the design from photographs. Then she scales the pixels to the size of the space where it will be installed. My job is to pixelate those images because we match the size of the space with the pixels that we have so that it fits. Two people work on the embroidery at once, passing the yarn back and forth. Rodrigo can hire up to 50 people for a large project. Immaculada Martinez is one of the senior embroiderers. She enjoys how the artwork draws people in. It attracts your attention and you feel like touching it, not just looking at it. So that's also one of the things that satisfies us when we see the product once it's already installed. It catches your eye. Also, the further away you get, the more beautiful it looks. Rodrigo's mother taught her to cross-stitch when she was eight years old. Now her works are on display as far away as Saudi Arabia, Switzerland, and Cape Verde. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. When we come back, the UK is making a new weight loss drug available for free to obese patients. Clinical trials show that it can reduce weight by 15% within a year. Details to come on NTD News today. Welcome back. Thousands of obese and diabetic patients in the UK are now getting free access to a new diet drug. The rollout is part of a pilot project by the UK government. The drug Wagovi mimics a naturally occurring substance in the body to suppress appetite. Clinical trials show the drug enables weight loss of around 15% after one year. So what this drug does is it heightens the levels of this hormone that are naturally occurring. It, 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 uh, we get this drug, we get this hormone in, in uh, much greater levels than what we would normally do. And it gives that brain that, that really big boost that, that we are no longer hungry and that we don't need to eat. UK patients diagnosed with diabetes or obesity will get Wegovi injections for two years. This along with specific support programs for fitness and nutrition. An estimated 35,000 people will gain access to the drug for free for two years. The rollout is part of a $50 million pilot by the UK government exploring weight loss treatment outside the hospital setting. Whether the program is expanded will also depend heavily on whether there is cost saving to the UK's National Health Service or NHS. Obesity costs the UK about six and a half billion pounds per year, uh, direct costs to the NHS with obesity related conditions. So it's a huge, significant cost. Obesity is often associated with heart disease, mobility problems and diabetes. If you want to positively impact your health, regular gentle exercise in the evening may be the answer according to a new study. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. A New Zealand study has found that regular light exercises at night are particularly effective. They can break the prolonged period of sitting time that tends to happen in the evening. This is when people have their largest meal and consume the bulk of their streaming services. 
The researchers in New Zealand have found that interrupting periods of sitting is good for your health. Short activity breaks lowered plasma glucose by 31.5% and reduced insulin by 27%. Jennifer Gale from the University of Otago is the lead author. She said that long periods of sitting are associated with an increased risk of disease. This includes diabetes and heart disease. On average, people spend three hours per day watching Netflix. Furthermore, people generally have their largest meal in the evening. The hormone that helps to clear sugar from the blood, which is insulin, is lower at this time of day. Gail said that when these lower daily insulin levels coincide with our longest period of sedentary behavior, these combined factors can promote a high-risk environment for the development of disease. The study involved 30 participants aged between 19 and 39. Four hours of sitting time in the evening was interrupted with three minutes of light resistance exercises every half an hour. The results show that light body weight exercises improve the flushing of sugar from the blood. This has the potential to enhance glycemic control. Light resistance exercises aren't your only option. Meditation and gentle exercises have been found to improve immunity and gene regulation. They can easily be incorporated into one's evening routine. A peer-reviewed study was published in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. They compared gene expressions of six Qigong practitioners to six healthy individuals who had never practiced any meditation. Researchers from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and the Baylor College of Medicine used DNA microarray technology. The aim was to determine the participants' gene regulation and immune function. The six Qigong practitioners were doing Falun Gong, which is a traditional Chinese meditation practice. The researchers concluded that practitioners had enhanced immunity and rapid resolution of inflammation. The spiritual practice includes moral teachings based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. The practice has been popular in China since the 1990s for its health benefits. It eventually attracted an estimated 70 million to 100 million practitioners by the end of the decade. It involves gentle stretching, slow movement, and postures that are held while the eyes are closed. Gail and her team's study was published in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise in March. They recommended online streaming services integrate regular prompts into their applications. They believe it will encourage people to intercept periods of sitting with short activity breaks. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers.